welcome everyone to another episode of Pressing On Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Senders. Today we're going to be going over an article on Pathios.com in the Progressive Christian channel titled, 11 Bible Verses That Turn Christians Into Atheists. Um, you know, being part of the Progressive Christian channel, you can tell that this is just going to be an absolute bastion of truth. Um, basically what progressive Christian means, it's just a more acceptable way of saying liberal Christian. And the it, it, with liberal Christianity being such a hodgepodge of beliefs, um, the one unifying belief held by all people that get that label of liberal thrown at them is going to be the fundamental denial of the inerrancy of scripture. And we're going to see that come up real quickly here. Um, this person that wrote this, his name is Jeremy Myers. He has a book, and I'll read you his little, uh, his little postscript that he has down here. It's, uh, it says, Jeremy Myers is a popular blogger and author at redeeminggod.com. His newest book, The Atonement of God, helps people see that God is not violent at all, but he looks just like Jesus, who all, always loves and only forgives. Which, of course, you know, I think about that meme that I see pop up every now and then with, uh, it's a painting of Jesus with a cat of nine tails whipping people um, in the temple. And uh, as memes are, you know, they have the script at the top and the script at the bottom. The script at the top on the, on the meme says, what would Jesus do? And the script on the bottom says, apparently chase people around with a whip. You know, because that's... Jesus was not just all love, and you know we can see where this person, where where uh, Mr. Myers is going to be coming from, uh, which is a uh, it definitely a a liberal perspective, a um, this this kind of postmodern Jesus is you know Jesus is all love and no condemnation and uh, accepting of everyone and uh, no justice, no. You know, no substitute, no penal substitutionary atonement, obviously, because, um, you know, we don't punish sin. We're just, it's all about love and everything. But uh, it's going to be hard to get off on tangents on this, and I don't want to get too much into that. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the uh, introduction here, and then uh, we'll go through each one of the 11 verses, and I'll have, I'll comment on what he says a little bit, but I'm going to give our explanation of what it is. Um, so let's get on with the article and read the introduction here. It says, I was recently having a discussion with an atheist who had grown up in a Christian family and had gone to church for the first 20 years of her life. She became an atheist in her 20s. When I asked her why she became an atheist, she said, quote, I started reading the Bible, unquote. We Christians often tell people that if they would only read the Bible, they would come to see that God is real and that he loves them. We hear testimony after testimony about how drug addicts and hookers were considering suicide, but somehow got a Bible and started reading it, and it ended up giving up their life to Christ. I am not in any way denying such accounts or stories. But I think it is also time to admit that while many people decided to follow Jesus as a result of reading the Bible, there are many others who turned away from God after reading the Bible. Part of this, I am convinced, is because we Christians have said that the entire Bible is the Word of God, but then we ignore, gloss over, conveniently forget, or simply dishonest about some of the more troubling portions of Scripture. And there are many troubling portions of Scripture. I call these troubling texts atheist maker verses. They are verses that do not point people to God, but instead lead people away from Him. Here are a few of the more blatant atheist maker verses. 
Okay, so then that, then he goes into the uh, his little commentary on each one of these eleven verses. So um, let's get into this uh, his introduction first part. Um, there are some things I agree with him here actually, uh, and it's some of the more concerning aspects that I see and that I've um, taught about in terms of, um, in particular, in terms of high school groups and college groups at churches, uh, youth groups in, in general, which is it, how easy it is to get into teaching students more, um, more pragmatic, more useful you know, quote unquote, useful, um, uh, useful Christian teachings rather than teaching them scripture and teaching them theology. Uh, and which is why we see droves of, um, you know, especially in, in large youth groups, we see droves of high schoolers walk away when they go to, when they go off to college because, um, they haven't been fed. And what, eventually ends up happening is that their youth group is nothing more than just a youth group. It's a place to hang out with their friends. And then when they go off to college and they recognize, hey, I've got a whole bunch of friends here and I don't have a pastor telling me you can't do this and you can't do that. And so they just go wander off into the non-Christian lifestyle. And some of this is, you know, what he says here, um, uh, especially in this paragraph, but I think it is also time to admit that while many people decided to follow Jesus as a result of reading the Bible, there are many others who turned away from God after reading the Bible. You know, that is in some sense actually true. But uh, on the other hand, you know, it, we have a, an answer to that, which is just simply that they weren't Christians to begin with. Any Christian, any Christian who is a true Christian, when they read Scripture, it doesn't mean that scripture is not going to be hard. And when I say hard, I don't mean hard to understand. I mean hard to swallow. Uh, it doesn't mean scripture is not going to be hard. But um, being indwelt with the Holy Spirit brings about a desire to understand, not a desire to say this can't be and then just, you know, flout the scripture, you know, flout the reading altogether or try to, you know, throw it off or say that it was just as this as this guy does, um, you know, deny inerrancy. Um, you know, no true Christian does that kind of thing. And so the fact of the matter is, is that people who walk away because of these verses, it's just because they're not regenerate. Uh, a, a Christian who is repulsed by scripture really isn't a Christian at all. Uh, the, the problem with trying to say that it's these verses per se that drive certain people away is because, um, is only because that kind of a person who makes that kind of a declaration has already written off scripture to begin with. Um, when scripture isn't inerrant, uh, you know, basically what you end up doing is you make yourself the standard for what is accurate, what is inaccurate in scripture. And so when we come to these 11 verses, what you're going to do is you're going to look at them. You're going to say what he says, which is that these verses do not point people to God. But if it is the word of God, then they have to point to people, point people toward God. The only reason that they wouldn't is if you are the objective stance or objective um, ground by which all scripture is judged, which is exactly what he is. 
And that's what happens when Scripture is no longer inerrant. When you make Scripture inerrant, and when you seek to harmonize Scripture, it makes Scripture rest upon itself, making Scripture its own authority, rather than making you the authority. So guys like this, and uh, people who walk away from Christianity because they just can't make heads or tails, or they can't accept pers- you know, certain, uh, certain uh, portions of Scripture, it's because what they're doing is they're making themselves the um, standard, the judge by which Scripture is, is judged, which sounds like Adam and Eve in the garden to me. You know, that's exactly the point of the uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is that you will become judge of good and evil. You will know good and evil. You'll be able to tell what is good and evil. You can judge good and evil for yourself. And that's exactly what this guy is doing. So he's going to go through these 11 verses. um, And uh, let's see. We have three problems that I want to think about before we get into the 11 verses. uh, As I'm going through these, I want you to try to think about these three problems and... um, Think about how much we ourselves are guilty of the exact same things when we read these, you know, more difficult, hard to swallow portions of scripture. So the first problem is holding scripture up to our measuring stick of culture. And we have to ask our question, how much have we made our point in time the objective measuring stick for which we judge all things? Um, are we trying to read these scripture passages in their own context? Or do we have this, and philosophically it's called modernism, the idea that modern man is better, philosophically greater than ancient man and smarter, just better all around, technologically more advanced, um, philosophically more advanced, morally more advanced. Um, If we're going to have that kind of an objective standpoint, which is that modern man is the be all end all of all things, then, you know, 10 years from now, modern man will no longer be modern man. Modern man will be modern man 10 years ago, in which case then your objective stance is completely subjective. And so the things that you have problems with, they're not really problems and it completely undermines this entire argument altogether. Uh, The second problem is not reading scripture according to its own context, which I kind of just got into, which is that when we read portions of scripture, we have to try to look at it from the standpoint of the people who are writing it and the grammatical context, the um, uh, the context of the passage according to where it's found within that place in scripture. Uh, what is the larger narrative that's going on? Where does it, uh, where does it land within the book that it's found in? Um, what point in time is this? Who's, you know, what, what is the political situation at that time? What is the moral situation at that time? Um, those kinds of things, you know, you have to read it according to its own context. You can't bring it into your own context and then judge it by how we see things today because people back then didn't see things the exact same way as we did today. And to, for us to claim that our viewpoint is better is, once again, going to make you your argument fall on shaky ground, because if that is your argument, then, like I said, 100 years from now, um, man is going to be smarter, more advanced, and therefore, why not just throw away our viewpoints right now? Our viewpoints are meaningless for that, for that exact reason. Um, uh, the third problem here is the constant desire by liberal Christians to make no attempt at harmonizing Scripture. 
Like I said, the one thing that unifies all liberal Christianity is the denial of the uh, sufficiency and inerrancy of Scripture. Um, liberal Christians, you can always point to liberal Christian when they absolutely refuse to try to make sense of Scripture. When they come up against a portion of Scripture that is in some way morally concerning, um, according to our own time, our own, you know, our own context, and have absolutely show absolutely no desire to try to um, harmonize it with the rest of Scripture, to try to make sense of it according to its own, according to its own context, according to the rest of Scripture, and instead just kind of chuck it out and say what this guy is eventually going to say, which we'll get to in his conclusions, um, that these were written, the, the Scripture is written by people, and while it still remains the Word of God. Uh, people are fallible, and therefore we have to see these verses as reflecting human fallibility, um, which is obviously just uh, completely off base, and it, it makes Scripture entirely untrustworthy. So uh, try thinking about those three three problems while I'm going through this. Uh, let's get into these 11 verses now. The first verse is Genesis 19.8, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to read them off of. Uh, his article, uh, so that way, um, that way, when I read his quotations of scripture, you know, I, I don't, I'm not getting accused of reading them in a different uh, translation, and so therefore changing, you know, changing the meaning of it or whatever. I want to try to address this as it is on his page. Uh, so Genesis 19:8 says, "See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish." Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. Now, obviously, this is the story of Lot, and Lot is in Sodom, and uh, what has happened is, is he's had two angelic visitors come and stay the night with him, and Sodom was known for homosexuality. Um, in Ezekiel, it says that they did abom abominations before me, and that's why they were destroyed. And not because, you know, a lot of people say that it's because of hospitality, and Ezekiel does say hospitality, but... Um, an abomination uh, in the law context. Uh, hospitality is not an, or lack of hospitality is not an abomination according to the law. Homosexuality is, though. Um, and, and so that, that is, that is the, the prevailing sin going on in, Genesis, or in, uh, in, in Sodom. And Lot is living amongst these people. And what happens is, is that these two angelic visitors come to visit and stay the night at Lot's house. And the men of the town hear about him. And they um, basically tell Lot to send them out because they want to have relations with them. And so what Lot does instead is offer his two daughters to them, um, in his two virgin daughters to the men instead of the angelic visitors. Now, his response is, uh, he says, as a daughter, a father of three daughters myself, I can't imagine, I cannot imagine offering my daughters to get raped so that I could protect the strangers under my roof. Uh, rather than trying to explain away Lot's behavior according to hospitality laws, we must condemn this behavior as horribly barbaric. Now, in one sense, again, I want to agree with him here. I, it, there are some people who, when they look at scripture, they want to try to justify everything that everyone does kind of set good guys on one side and bad guys on the other side. And we're going to justify everything that the good guys do. And then 
condemn everything that the bad guys do. Um, but I, I don't see any reason to do that. I try to make a difference between what's called prescriptive portions of Scripture and descriptive portions of Scripture. Some portions of Scripture are there to prescribe what it is that we are supposed to do, what, how it is that we're supposed to worship God, how it is that we're supposed to live our life as children of God. Some portions of Scripture are simply descriptive. It's just telling us what it is that happened. It's telling us the state of affairs for whatever it is that that portion of Scripture is referring to. In this case, it's telling us the story of Lot. Um, I see no reason to justify Lot. What he did was wrong, and it's the result of his acceptance of living with sinful people. You know, he, we have to think about what's not being told to us in the story, which is that Lot came into Sodom, and Lot, obviously, by locking the doors after bringing the men in, he knew what was going on in that city. He knew that the men of the city were perverse, and yet he continued to live amongst them. And if I can make kind of a parallel here, it's kind of like when you hear someone say, you know, I've, I've got this one sin and I just can't get away from it. But then you find out that the reason that they can't get away from it is because they keep putting themselves in a context where uh, they're going to, they're set to fail every single time. You know, it's like, you know, I'm an alcoholic and I just, I can't get away from drinking. And yet you find out that they're going out with their friends every day of the week, you know, with the people that they work with to go have a drink. Well, it's no wonder you can't get away from it. If you're truly an alcoholic, you're not going to be able to, you know, by going to a bar, you're not going to, you're putting yourself in a situation where you're not going to be able to say no. And uh, for Lot, you know, basically if he has set himself to live amongst these people and be a part of their civilization, eventually ill is going to become of it. And so what he did was wrong, but it's because of the situation that he put himself in. And so I see no reason to justify him here. Um, however, that still doesn't answer the question as to why it is that he did it in the first place. And the reason that I see for why Lot did this, because this seems like a really, really strange thing. And, you know, even if you want to say it, whether you say it's good or evil, whatever, um, I think it's evil either way. And I think that it's the result of, um, like I said, the result of uh, Lot's poor choices. Uh, however, why is it that he would do something like this? And the reason that I see that Lot would do something like this is because we have this um, this principle in Scripture. It's called the law of first occurrences. Every time we see a new horrific sin in Scripture, it's given a particular... Um, well, it's for one thing, it, it's uh, uh, the, the consequences for that sin are that in that first instance are always, always way over the top. You know, in this case, Sodom and Gomorrah both get destroyed because of that, that sin. Um, on the other hand, uh, in the law of first occurrences, whenever we see a particular sin that is um, showing up for the first time, it's always given a it's always given a, a more special treatment that first time. 
And this happens to be the first time that we're seeing homosexuality in Scripture, uh, uh, as far as chronologically speaking. Um, murder came, from, you know, there was the fall in the garden, and then murder, and then we see Lamech takes two wives, which is an oddity, and we went through that in the last podcast. And here we see homosexuality. Um, and the homosexuality is a pretty big one because uh, it goes against the creation order. God created man and woman, and man and woman were to live together. And uh, this should be, when we come upon Sodom and Gomorrah, if we're reading it chronologically, and we're trying to put ourselves in the context of the people who are hearing this for the first time, um, you're going to come to this portion of scripture, and this should this should disgust you, because there's an order that's been, that's been set, and this is completely against that order. Um, we only see men and women together, uh, and yet in uh, Genesis 19, here you have not just men and men, but you have a large group of men, and they are uh, dangerous, and they want to overpower and, you know, obviously rape. And so Lot's response, uh, as I see it, Lot's response, the reason for his response is because of the severity of the sin. Um, it's, once again, I'm not saying that his response was a good response, but what he did sinfully was choose the lesser of two evils, and he he offered his daughters because it is better to rape women than it is to rape for men to rape men. Um, and like I said, I'm not trying to not trying to uh, um, justify Lot at all, but I think that this is what's going on here because once again, this is the first occurrence of homosexuality in Scripture. And being the first occurrence of homosexuality, it takes a it, it should stand out as something. Um, of particular significance. And Lot's reaction to it is also of particular significance because uh, to offer his two vir virgin daughters, so you would assume that they're probably very young, um, to, to offer them, and, you know, I mean, in that kind of a situation, obviously he's offering them up to death. You know, I mean, that, that would be the only outcome to this would be that his daughters would die from it. And for him to do that should invoke a feeling of disgust and a feeling of uh, just awfulness from the reader. And the reason for that is because Lot is responding to the terrifying nature of homosexuality. Um, and it, I think that makes perfectly good sense with the context, and especially in terms of the uh, consequence that is brought about on Sodom, of, Sodom and Gomorrah, the uh, it's just, it completely and utterly destroyed every single portion of it from with fire from heaven and burning sulfur. Um, it, it is a horrible end to that city, and the reason for that is because of the homosexuality, as Ezekiel points out. So uh, let's go into the next passage. Next passage is Exodus 21, 20 to 21. Uh, and if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. Uh, and then let's read his uh, 
the author's little commentary here, it says, This was a favorite verse of slave owners during the period of slavery in our country. In fact, all of Exodus 21 talks about the rules for treating slaves. And apparently you can beat your slave all you want, even within an inch of their life, because the slave is your property. Of course, even if you kill your slave, you won't be put to death yourself, but only punished. This sort of verse about slaves has caused many people to turn away from God and Christianity. Okay, so the first thing we have to understand then is this kind of whitewashing of slavery by people that are trying to condemn scripture. And usually it's from the mouths of atheists. In this case, it's a liberal Christian. But this idea that all slavery is created the same. If you're going to comment on scriptural, biblical, Hebrew slavery, you have to comment it on the, from the context of biblical Hebrew slavery, not American slavery, not English slavery, not slavery anywhere else. Only that that was prescribed by the law. Um, Hebrew slavery was not like American slavery. One of the uh, uh, Exodus 21, 20 to 21, and I don't remember where I got this quotation from, but I found this quotation. It says, uh, that this verse is that is typically touted by internet atheists who want to pretend as though they know the Bible. The problem with uh, quoting this verse here is that they don't understand the context of slavery in the uh, in ancient times, which is that as if in particular with Hebrew slavery, which is that um, they were people back then were not rich. Society was not as great as, as it is today, and um, social government was not as developed. They did not have um, they did not have welfare systems, and so slavery was a was sort of like a safety net for people um, who had no place to go, basically, because you had more or less two choices: you could become a slave, and you might be treated like garbage, and you might not be fed very well, but you'll have a food over your head, you'll have some food in your belly, and you'll live. On the other hand, if you choose to not be a slave and you don't have a home, you don't have a job, anything like that, then your life is the street where eventually you will, you will die there eventually of starvation. Uh, for Hebrew society, the slavery was a, was a, um, was a safety net. Uh, especially, you know, this is an exodus and they're going to be going into the book of Joshua eventually and they're going to be trampling through all of Canaan. The cities that were prescribed to uh, not destroy every single person that lived there, what would the, um, in those cities where not everyone was destroyed, what would the ending be for children, for women, um, you know, you know, because obviously it, with these cities, the almost the entire population of male is gonna of men is gonna make up the fighting force. In which case, they're you know every single man is gonna is going to be killed almost, if not entirely. And so you will have a city left over that's entirely women and children. What's what is the end point of them going to be if you don't have slavery? They're all going to die. They're not going to be able to make ends meet. Their entire city has just been demolished. Um, it, this is a, a means of, uh, showing grace on those who were left over, those who were, um, uh, not destroyed for their sins, because 
we know that Joshua, what, what was the pers- purpose of Joshua marching through Canaan? It was to punish the Canaanites for their sins, which one of which was um, the, the uh, sin of offering their children up to the fires of Moloch, uh, child sacrifice. But uh, Canaan had... Uh, uh, Canaan had absolutely no moral compass. They were a horrible people, and Israel was the uh, was the means of the Lord's arm to uh, uh, to uh, to punish that those the absolutely sinful lifestyle that was going on there. Now, uh, getting back to the verse, kind of went off on a little bit rabbit, a little bit of a rabbit trail there, though. Uh, Getting back to the verse, the the whole thing that you got to remember is that slavery in ancient times is not the same as slavery today. So we got to start from that point. Uh, now, the first thing we need to point out is that punishment for killing another human restrains man's evil and recognizes all as having the imago dei. Remember that the first part of this verse says that if you kill your servant and that he dies immediately you shall surely be punished. You're going to be, you're going to get killed. Okay. That is the punishment for someone killing someone else. And it doesn't matter who it is. If you kill another person, and this is going back to the, the covenant with Noah, if a man kills another man, his life shall be required of him. Uh, so if you kill your male or female servant, you shall be punished. You're going to be killed. Um, and that respects the Imago Dei. And so therefore it puts slave owner and slave on the same level of they're both human. It doesn't make slaves subhuman. It raises them up to having the same kind of respect that the slave owner deserves. Um, now, verse 21, uh, it, there are a couple things we have to recognize here. And the, the first thing we got to recognize is that it is, it, how in the world could you ever intentionally kill someone after a couple days, like I'm going to beat you within an inch of your life, I and mean, I'm going to plan that you're you're going to die after a day or two. Um, it, it, you know it, that's not going to happen. <laughs> to plan for that to happen would be so uh, difficult that it's not even worth um, not even worth considering. It's just uh, a, a silly uh, silly objection. Um, what this verse does then, understanding that that's very difficult to try to purposely intend to beat someone so that they die after a certain period of time, um, this is a means of forcing slave owners to use restraint. Because if you do try to time your murder, that person could always die early. And if they die early, there goes your life. So this is a means of uh, forcing slave owners to use restraint, to not beat them within an inch of their life because they could die and then your life is going to be, your, your life is going to be forfeit. You're going to be killed under, under the law. Uh, however, if an accidental death does occur, you are still punished because the loss of one's own property is enough punishment. Slaves were a valuable resource. If the people who owned slaves, the slave was a worker, the slave was property, he, he, uh, he, she held value to the person who owned them. And if you killed them uh, on accident, this was your, that, that was your punishment because you have lost property. 
it's kind of like, um, you know, if you own an, if you owned an ox and your ox was the means of tilling your field and you get mad at the ox and you kill it, how are you going to get food? It's self-punishment to do something like that and therefore to put these kinds of, to put the law uh, on a person the way that it, it is worded here is to force the, per, force the slave owner to use restraint to not, to not beat their slaves because you're going to cause yourself, you're going to cause yourself harm either by accidentally killing them and then you get put to death or you lose your slave and then you, you, you lose basically some, uh, uh, the, the means by which you're keeping yourself alive, the means by which you are, um, uh, providing for yourself, which, like I said before, going back to, um, uh, Going back to the issue of slavery in the first place, if you don't work, you don't eat. So, and if you don't eat, you don't die. So, it, uh, for the slave owners, if they kill their slaves, they're not going to have anybody to do the work for them, and they're not going to be able to eat because they're not going to be able to turn over to make money, essentially. Okay, uh, the next verse we're going to is Leviticus 25, 44 to 45. And as for your male and female slaves, whom you may have from the nations that are around you, from them you may buy male and female slaves. Moreover, you may buy the children of the strangers who dwell among you and their families who are with you, which they beget in your land, and they shall become your property. And then the author's uh, comment here says, this is another verse about slaves, but this one includes the children. According to God, is it okay? it is okay to buy and sell children. So apparently everybody today who is trying to raise awareness about the human trafficking of children just needs to shut up. Apparently God's in favor of it. Now, like I said, I answered this in the last one, which is that problem is, is that Hebrew slavery is not like modern slavery. Um, and it is not like human trafficking today. Human trafficking today is done for the pleasure of the people who are doing it. Back then, and under Hebrew law, it was, it was a safety net because... If you had children who are, you know, perhaps um, uh, perhaps they're wandering because they got they got ousted from their city through a war. Perhaps Israel was the one who uh, was the one who took them over. Um, and you have children whose parents have been killed. What is the end point for that child? If they don't become a slave, if they don't have a means to which they can make a life for themselves, their only endpoint is going to be death. And how awful would that be to be a child, an orphan, in those times where, like I said, if you don't work, you don't eat. And those children would just die of starvation, and that's, that's basically what's going to be waiting for them. Um, so slavery back then was essentially was a form of welfare. And the thing that sets... Uh, Jewish slavery apart from other slavery, which was this idea of ownership. Um, it, in Hebrew slavery, they had this thing called the year of Jubilee, which is described in Leviticus 25, 1 through 4 and 8 through 10, where every 50 years, they let all the slaves go. Now, a slave had the opportunity to stay with the slave owner and they would get a nose ring and they would, um, they would then be the property of that slave owner for the rest of their life. But every 50 years, they had this year of Jubilee and all the slaves were allowed the opportunity to be free and to go make a life for their life for themselves. So abolition was built into the law. Abolition was built into um, uh, the Mosaic law, into the Levitical law. Everyone had an opportunity to to work towards freedom. 
and therefore it made slavery a means of taking care of the less fortunate. And once again, like I said, going back to the very beginning, the problem with denying inerrancy of Scripture and the problem of um, refusing to harmonize Scripture because you deny inerrancy is that your context, you become the means by which we judge Scripture, the means by which we judge truth. And when you become the means by which you judge truth, you don't need to know the context back then. You don't need to try to understand this from their standpoint because essentially you are God. You've made yourself God. And that's what this author is doing. Uh, the next passage uh, ties right into it. First Peter 2.18 Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Now, so uh, here's his commentary. Uh, so if you were a slave and your master beats you harshly, you should just accept it. After all, fear of your master is a good thing. As a little side note, what I find most interesting about the numerous verses all over the Bible about slavery is that modern Christians almost unanimously condemn the practice of slavery, even though the Bible condones and accepts it in numerous places. And yet the Bible condemns homosexuality. In three verses, Christians are divided over whether or not we should follow these verses. God's word said it. That settles it, we are told. My response is, really? So can I meet your slaves? But the Bible is not just wrong about slaves. Certain texts and women, uh, about women are also quite appalling. Uh, and then he goes into some other verses. But uh, so, you know, not only here is he saying that, um, you know, once again, he's whitewashing because uh, he's jumping into First Peter. Now we're not talking about Hebrew slavery anymore. We're talking about Roman slavery. Um, and not only is he jumping contexts, but he's also trying to say that if we that uh, slavery must be okay, slavery in the American mindset must be okay, and therefore Christians should all own slaves. And therefore, we should not condemn homosexuality because we're not because we shouldn't be condemning slavery, which is a joke, because slavery and homosexuality are both talked about in the Levitical and the in the Mosaic law, and therefore. Uh, if you rule out both of them, you've got to rule out all the rest of it too. Children, honor your mother and father. Nope, get rid of it. Um, you know, uh, honor the elderly. Nope, get rid of it. Uh, no bestiality, because that contextually is right next to homosexuality in Leviticus. Nope, get rid of it. You know, that's okay. We're just gonna we're gonna accept all, or we're gonna get rid of all the, all of those laws because this guy dis disagrees with slavery issue, and therefore it's just the reason for getting rid of all the rest of it. Um, and, you know, there's not three verses on homosexuality. And, uh, you know, we talked about this in our, uh, I think our second or third podcast, so you can go back and listen to that. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, in, in 1 Peter, one of the things that you've got to re realize, and um, uh, in Philemon too, Philemon is all about slavery, uh, why would it be that Peter would tell servants to be submissive to their masters? Because we worship a sovereign God. It is God who is responsible for putting us in the situations that we are in. Uh, Proverbs says that the heart of the king is like a watercourse in the hand of the Lord. He bends it whither he wills. Uh, it's it's God who directs the affairs of men. Therefore, if you're a if you're a slave, 
your slave because that's the situation that God has put you in. And that is what God requires of you is to, if you are going to be a slave, you be a Christian slave. Peter's polemic is not social justice. It is not to push this idea of Christians rising up against social injustices. Because you know what would happen if, if that happened in Rome? What's going to happen if you start you know, rioting about social justices? Uh, the Romans will kill you. <laughs> That's just what's going to happen. The Romans will kill you. This, Rome was not America, and the Pax Romana was not the Constitution. The Pax Romana essentially says, you live by our laws, and we're going to have peace, because if you disagree with the way we do things, we're going to kill you. And that's what they did, is they just marched around and destroyed everyone. Peter is saying that you submit to the circumstances that the Lord has set you in, and uh, you do so in Christ because... God has put you in those circumstances, and we need to show joy no matter what circumstances we're in. When Paul was in jail, did he pitch and moan about how it was unjust of uh, of Rome to put him in to put him in shackles, to put him in chains, to throw him in jail because you know he's a Christian and they should understand that you know his beliefs are different than theirs and they should respect his beliefs? No. No, he was joyful and sang the praises of the Lord for being in jail, and he knew that he was in jail as part of God's will because um, by being in jail, the gospel would go further. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. Why? Because by doing so, you're going to preach the gospel to your, to your, uh, your, uh, your owner. That's the whole point. You don't preach the gospel by complaining about the position that you're in. You preach the gospel by living a Christ-like life and, and submitting to the situation that you are in. So uh, that gets me worked up. That uh, All of this just gets me all worked up just because, you know, once again, the whole point of this entire article is just to judge the Bible according to our standpoint and to be essentially play God and to intentionally not try to make sense of scripture. Okay, so moving on to the next verse. Uh, Deuteronomy 22, 20 to 21. But if, this, but if the thing is true and evidences of virginity are not found for the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done a disgraceful thing in Israel to play the harlot in her father's house. So you shall put away the evil from among you. And then his comment is, so if a woman has premarital sex, she should be stoned. Other texts lay guilt on the man as well, but the guilty male gets less attention than the guilty female. Now here he completely skips over the problem, um, which is stated in the verse itself, which is that, uh, what is the punishment? Is the punishment just stoning? No. Then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house because she has done a disgraceful thing in Israel to play the harlot in her father's house. So you shall put away the evil from among you. Who, who is this a punishment really against? It's not against, it's not against the girl. It's against the father. Uh, it, it's that the father allowed this to go on in his household without knowing and as a result, he loses his daughter. Now, this guy already said he's got three daughters. 
Um, what would be, if this was the law, what would be your view on making sure that your daughters remain chaste? You probably are going to be really, really heavy-handed on making sure that your daughters aren't out fooling around. Because what's going to happen to them? One of these days, if they get married, their husband is going to go into the marriage chamber with them, and he's going to come out and he's going to say, uh, this girl wasn't a virgin. And then they're going to check the sheets, because that's what the, that's what the verse says, is that they're going to check the sheets and they're going to find out that this woman, no, she wasn't a virgin. And what are they going to do with her? They're going to bring her to your door, fathers. They're going to bring her to your door, your little girl, the girl that grew up in your house, your love, your sweet daughter, and they're going to stone her there right in front of you. Why? Because it was your sin, not hers. You should have been paying attention to her. So he completely misses the context here, which is that this is not a, this is not a punishment on the females. This is a punishment on the, on the fathers. This is a punishment on the fathers of the daughters for allowing them to go out and do what they want. It's not just about premarital sex. It's about the management of a household. So he completely misses the point there. Uh, he's going to miss the point here, too, in, de- in the next verse, which is Deuteronomy 23.1. He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. And he comments, So if your penis is cut off or your balls are crushed, God does not accept your worship. God only accepts worship from people whose genitals are in good condition. Uh, parenthesis, minus the foreskin, of course, that sort of mutilation is required by God. The thing that gets me about such verse, verses is how people knew is how people knew who could go into worship God and who couldn't. Did they have a little, quote, inspection station, unquote, at the front door? And we complain about the TSA groping us when we get into a plane. Now, here again, this goes back to my original point, which is that people who deny inerrancy and um, uh, liberal Christians, they, they do not try to harmonize Scripture. They do not try to make sense of it. A cursory reading, according to my own context, is good enough. Um, His point here, in the second paragraph, the thing that gets me about such verses is how people knew who could go in to worship God and who couldn't. Ding, ding, ding. That's the problem right there. Did they have these little TSA check-in stations? No, of course they didn't. So are they, is this verse really talking about people who have had some kind of an accident or who have, you know, something has happened to them unintentionally. No, the purpose of the verse is most likely talking about eunuchs, people who have worshipped um, other gods in other religions and, ha- and bear the marks on their body of that religion. They would not be allowed to be entered in. So the whole point here is to be religiously pure. Uh, They didn't want people who bore the marks of false religion, of the religion of the people around them being being admitted into the um, uh, into the the main areas of of temple worship, um, the 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 formal services of the uh, tabernacle or the temple, as the uh, NET notes put it. Um. So this isn't talking about just normal, normal worship uh, assembly here. 
doesn't talk about not being admitted into the nation, uh, going back to the NET notes, um, is talking about the formal tabernacle services. Uh, and once again, it has to do with the, uh, usually it has, it's going to have to do with eunuchs or something. That's some people who bore the marks on their bodies of false religions. Uh, the next verse, Deuteronomy 25, 11 to 12, if two men fight together and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of the one attacking him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the genitals, then you shall cut her hand off. Your eye shall not pity her. Uh, and he comments, so two men are fighting and a woman steps in to defend her man and ends up grabbing the genitals of her husband's opponent. Rather than discipline the men for fighting in the first place, the proper response in this case is to cut off the woman's hand. That sounds fair. I also wonder how this law came about. Was it a common thing for women to grab the balls of their husband's enemy when they were fighting? Maybe this verse had something to do with the previous one about not getting to worship God if your balls are mangled. Maybe a man could no longer pray to God because some women crushed his balls, or some woman crushed his balls, and so they had to make a rule against that sort of thing. Of course, now that the woman has no hand, she can't worship God either because God doesn't allow deformed people into his presence either. On the other hand, he doesn't care too much for women either. But it's not just women God hates. He's also not fond of dwarves, hunchbacks, people with eczema, or those who have, or those who have a limb that is too long. Um, which is going to go into the next verse here. And, and you can see how he's, he's um, it, mixing up context here as to what it's talking about. Like I said, I mean, all I had to do was just go, I, I'm not even looking at a um, theological dictionary. I'm just looking at a, the notes for a Bible translation. Uh, the Hebrew term translated assembly, kahal, does not refer here to the nation as such, but to the formal services of the tabernacle or the temple. So the people who were not, uh, in talking about the uh, previous verse, about the one who is um, emasculated, uh, the people who are not allowed in to enter the assembly are the people who are not allowed to do temple services. Uh, not talking about not being allowed uh, to worship God altogether. And the same thing goes here. Uh, he's trying to grab the, you know, put the two together and say that this has to do with the same thing. Um, the, this verse, um, I, I don't think this verse is talking about accidentally touches because look at the language that's used here. She puts out her hand and seizes him by the genitals. This is talking about a woman. She's, you know, I mean, what is, what is the man's weak point between his legs? So if a woman wants to stop a man from attacking her husband, what's the best way to stop him? It's to go after his genitals. Why? Because she's going to probably be able to drop him, you know, pretty easily. Uh, and so it, this has to do with purity. Woman should not be touching a man there, even though his, her husband might be fighting with the man. That's still not good enough. And once again, this kind of goes back to Lot a little bit, which is that if you have two men fighting in the first place, they're not supposed to be. And so if this, if the woman can't do anything, if she can't stop it, well, they shouldn't have been in that place in the first place. So it's not a matter of, oh, well, how is she going to be able to stop the fight, you know, if she can't do that kind of a thing? No, they shouldn't have been fighting in the first place. And if he gets, you know, the tar beaten out of him, and she can't stop it. Well, it's his fault for being in a fight. Um, but uh, the whole point is that she reaches out and grabs his genitals in order to do him harm. And uh, the thing about the... Notice how it says you cut off her um, 
you cut off her hand. Uh, the reason that you would have the hand cut off is because this is an issue of purity. And the right hand uh, in Isaiah 57, 8, and in both Hebrew and in Ugaritic, uh, it was the right hand was a euphemism for the male organ. Since you couldn't cut off a woman's genitals, you cut off her hand in order to show that, uh, in order to, um, you know, as a euphemism to purify her. Why? Because she shouldn't be putting her hands there. I mean, you think about all the places where, uh, and in the law too, but in any place where uh, nakedness is talked about, you think about like uh, Noah. It was a huge deal for Noah's son to laugh about Noah's nakedness. And it was such a big deal for him to be naked that his two other sons walked backwards to cover him up. So for for a woman to to put her hand out and grab a man by his by his penis was a is a huge purity issue, and so you cut off her hand to symbolize the cutting off of her purity, cutting off of her genitals. It, it's symbolic. Um, Leviticus going on to the next one, Leviticus twenty one eighteen to nineteen. For any man who has a defect shall not approach a, ma a man blind or lame who has a marred face or any limb too long, a man who has a broken foot or broken hand or is a hunchback or a dwarf, or a man who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scab or is a eunuch. Um, and then his comment is, to approach God, you apparently had to be a perfect male specimen with a working penis. Everybody, could not, everybody else could not approach him. But it is not just the dwarves and the blind that God was against. He was also not a big fan of children. Uh, and then that's, of course, going into the next verse. So not only does he say that, um, you know, in cutting off her hand, that it makes her unable to worship God, because here it says in Leviticus, it says that uh, anyone who has a defect shall not approach. Um, he's trying to say that basically what you're doing by doing that is you're rendering her incapable of worshiping, which you have to understand context again. But of course... He doesn't care about context. All he cares about is, is his agenda, which is that the Bible has problems. The context is that they're talking about Levitical priests. You are in temple service. The Levitical priests were approaching the God of the universe. It was a very, very sacred and holy, um, which means sacred, uh, very uh, sacred position. To try that, to try that, play that down, and try to act like it's not that big of a deal. That you know God's standards are just way too high. Just that just basically shows this man's heart. That you know, all he wants to do is mock the Bible. All he wants to do is find fault with the Bible, rather than looking at this is the God of the universe. The God of the universe wants in terms of who it is that's representing him in his uh, in his in his temple it, who is doing the services in his temple he wants them to be perfect specimens because that's how he created man he did not create man with sin he did not create man with problems man's problems came about by his own hand by his own, taking of the apple by his own failure to follow the word of the Lord, follow the commands of the Lord. And all of these kinds of, you know, what uh, blind or lame, marred face, too long of a limb, 
uh, broken foot or broken hand. These are all the result of sin. And therefore, he doesn't want them doing the Levitical priestly temple work, temple worship, because the temple worship was sacred, was holy, and should be representative of, it should, it should, rep- it should represent, it should be in its view and how you are seeing it when you approach the temple should be perfection because you are approaching God. So you have to understand the context here. This is not just for everyone in Israel. You couldn't worship God if you had these things. No, of course not. You could still worship God, but you couldn't do you couldn't work in the temple. Uh, the next verse, Leviticus 29. For everyone who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or mother, his blood shall be upon him. And his uh, comment is, how is this even remotely justified? I don't care if a kid cursed his parents with the worst curses ever uttered. Does he deserve to get stoned to death for it? Frankly, if a kid has parents who would be willing to stone him to death for cursing them, they probably deserved getting cursed. But no, God apparently sides with the parents. And it is no wonder that the number one sin Christians are terrified of committing today is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I get dozens of emails about this sin every single week, and without fail, the people who think they have committed this sin feel that, feel that because they have said something mean about God, God is going to forever burn them in hell. And where does, this, where does such an idea come from? It comes partly from a verse like Leviticus 29, where God tells parents it's okay to kill their children if he curses them. So sad. But God doesn't always have children killed by stoning them. Sometimes he kills them with bears. It's going to take us on to the next verse. Um, once again, context. Uh, to, uh, first thing here is that uh, curses his father or mother. He's not talking about using swear words. Uh, it's talking about laying, laying a curse upon. The word curse in the Hebrew there means to pronounce an oath against. And so you could pronounce an oath against their crops. You could pronounce an oath against their health, pronounce an oath against uh, a travel or something like that. But um, the context here that the verse is found in is peculiar because uh, it's found in an area of scripture where, or it's found right before the passages that we already read that has to do with adultery. Why would that be found in that, in those pa- heading, those passages that have to do adultery, have to do with adultery, unless of course this kind of a curse had some kind of uh, sexual overtone to it. So the shaming of a mother and a father through s- sexual promiscuity, perhaps, uh, because otherwise, why would this be found with laws on sexual purity? Doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. So you know, of course, once again, though this uh, this author he wants to. Um, you know, he wants to be funny. He wants to be kind of sarcastic. He wants to be kind of edgy. And so he makes fun of scripture without going to the text and trying to figure it out why it is that it says this. He's just going to read it. And he most likely, I mean, the way that these, the way that these verses are laid out, I mean, he probably just went to another website and just found a bunch of verses that people have problems with and then decided to just give his two bits on it without ever doing any kind of meaningful study of any of the passages. Um, And, you know, of course, uh, these are the kind of people that people flock to, and uh, these are the kind of people that uh, are going to get the big followings. These are the kind of people that are going to have 
uh, people buying their books and, you know, they're going to be well recognized because they say things that the natural man wants to hear. Natural man wants to hear the Bible and that mocked because it's the Lord's word. Uh, and so a guy like this, um, he can just go and do this kind of cursory reading of all these passages and give absolutely no background, no really real meaningful response to the text, no um, studied response to the text. Just give his his thoughts on these passages, and that's good enough. And he's going to get uh, something like a thousand comments on this passage. And if you go through and read them, it's everybody's thanking him for all this stuff and what a wonderful job he did. And uh, all he's doing is just mocking scripture. And he's mocking scripture without any basis from which to mock it. Um, and if, you know, this is this is typical of not just liberal Christianity, but um, modern. Uh, modern Christianity, which is to just, you know, if something offends me, I'm just going to disregard it on the basis of my own moral superiority. And that's all that there is to it. And that's what he's doing. So uh, on to the next verse, which is talking about Elijah, or I'm sorry, Elisha here. 2 Kings 2, 23 and 24. Then he went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going up the road, some youths came up from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. So he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. And his comment is, Apparently, even though God doesn't want people to worship him who are blind in one eye or have a limb too long or have eczema, he is a, fan of big, he is a big fan of bald men. These youths learned the, that lesson the hard way. Bald men shall not be mocked, especially when that bald man is a prophet. And when God cannot get children, sto cannot get children stoned or mauled by bears, he just pronounces blessings on those who bash babies' heads against the rocks. Which is going to, of course, lead into the next verse. Uh, so here you have a story about Elisha, and you have these, um, uh, these young men that come up and they mock him, and there's obviously quite a few of them. And look at it, it says... Uh, it mauled 42 of the youths, which is, means that there were probably many more of them. So you have a, a large group of young men coming up to a prophet and mocking him. And we don't really know what go up, you bald head means. You know, who knows what go up means? Uh, scholars are, you know, they, they don't really know what that means, but obviously it's not nice. And uh, what what this author says here in in this one sentence right here should should really be should really really be dwelt upon and thought about what this means he says especially when that bald man is a prophet that should mean something and i i can't even imagine the heart of this author typing that sentence and not stopping and looking at that sentence and asking himself, how could I write this? Especially when that bald man is a prophet. The man chosen by God to specifically represent him to an entire nation of people, um, to do signs and wonders that aren't done by normal people, and uh, you have a, a, and to be mocked by a large gathering. I mean, even if 42 is the exact number of the, uh, of the people that were killed, to, for the prophet of the Lord to be mocked, to be probably chased and followed 
because look how it's repeated. Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. You know, they were probably saying it to him, you know, multiple times. We're following him around, giving him a hard time. You know, to just excuse that behavior does not recognize the position of Elisha. He is a prophet of the Lord. He's a prophet of God. He's there to judge the nation. He has, um, obviously, at his disposal, um, powers from the Lord that go beyond normal men. And his uh, his mentor, Elijah, same thing was with him. Um, these were special men. These were uh, consecrated men. These were not just a normal run-of-the-mill. This wasn't like a pastor. Not that that's not that it's okay to go mock pastors, but um, it, it, these were men that were of a, a special class, a special caste, and uh, his response was appropriate. Response was entirely appropriate, and I can guarantee you that the people from that city no longer sent their boys out to go mock prophets any longer, because uh, you're going to get killed by bears possibly. Okay, now the the last verse and. You know, this is, here is the, the typical response. I mean, this is, uh, th is going to typify the entirety of this article. Uh, Psalm 137.9. Happy is the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. And here's his comment. Happy? The word here could also be translated as blessed. But try to picture the scene. Was the... Was this like baby pinata day? Imagine a soldier coming home from a day of baby smashing. His wife greets him at the door with a kiss. So how was your day, honey? She says. Great. God was really at work in me today. I got to smash babies against a wall. We all praised God as we did it. The spirit was really moving. I must have killed 10 or 12, but that Joe Ash, he got over 20. He's a beast. The best part is that now we are going to be blessed because all the babies we killed. I'm standing on the promises of God. This it, it, this passage here is the one that really gets me. That think, makes me think that this guy just went, and, you know, just did an internet search, and found a bunch of difficult Bible passages and did absolutely zero studying on them, because there is, if you just read this psalm from beginning to end, there is no way that you could take this out of context, if you understood the context that it was in. The only way that you could come up with this kind of an understanding of this one line is if you only read the one line. So let's go to Psalm 137 and read the entirety of Psalm 137. Okay, Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sit down and weep when we remember Zion. On the poplars in her midst we hang our harps, for there our captors ask us to compose songs. Those who mock us demand that we be happy, say, saying, Sing for us a song about Zion. How can we sing a song to the Lord in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand be crippled. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, and do not give Jerusalem priority over whatever gives me the most joy. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. They said, Tear it down, tear it down, right to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, soon to be devastated, how blessed will be the one who repays you for what you dished out to us. How blessed will be the one who grabs your babies and smashes them on a rock. Okay, so what is going on here? 
look at the very first verse. By the rivers of Babylon, we sit down and weep when we remember Zion. In verse 3, For there our captors ask us to compose songs. Those who mock us demand that we be happy, saying, Sing for us a song about Zion. And so what is it that they sing? That's, it's what follows. How can we sing a song to the Lord in a foreign land? And what do they, look at all the things that they sing about it. They sing about the Edomites, tear it down, tear it down. Oh, daughter Babylon, soon to be devastated. Oh, they sing a song about, about Zion, all right. And what do they do? Uh, how blessed will be the one who repays you for what you dished out to us. How blessed will be the one who grabs your babies and smashes them on a rock. This is what is called an, impec an imprecatory psalm. Presumably, because remember, the people who are writing this are in the hands of their captors. They're, they've been, uh, it's, it's uh, written by someone who is part of the Babylonian captivity. They're being led away from Jerusalem by their captors and are being forced to sing songs about Jerusalem by the people who captured them. Um, and so what they're doing is they're mocking their captors. They're singing about Jerusalem but they're singing about what happened in Jerusalem when they were, uh, when they were overrun. And they sit, they're talking about Babylon, and they're singing about Jerusalem and saying, what has happened to us, or what you did to us, we hope that the same happens to you. And who wouldn't say such a thing in that, um, who wouldn't say such a thing in that kind of a context? You're, you're being led away, you're a slave, you're being led away from your home, having seen your babies smashed on rocks by the Babylonians, would that not be the first thing off most people's lips in that kind of a situation where your captors are mocking you? Yeah, we'll sing a song about Jerusalem, all right? We'll sing a song about what happened in Jerusalem just like about a couple days ago. That's what's going on here. And this is the... You know, it, this is really the icing on the cake with uh, this author says about this passage, which is obviously he never read the psalm whatsoever. He has no desire to try to justify what's being said. He has no desire to read it in its own context. He has no desire to answer, um, to, to look at this, look at the sentence as problematic in its own right, but to answer it according to its own according to its own context. So uh, this, is the end of, this is the end of the 11 verses, and uh, he's got a conclusion here, and I want to look at the three conclusion points that he has. Uh, so he says, uh, how to handle atheist maker verses. He says, I could go on and on with these sorts of verses, but here's the point. What are we to do with these sorts of atheist maker verses? Here are three basic Christian responses. Now, of course, he says, I could go on and on with these sorts of verses, meaning that he could go do some more Google searches and find other passages that, people have, that other people have found problematic because he obviously doesn't care. He doesn't care to read these things. He doesn't care to study them. He's obviously not a student of Scripture. Um, so when he says go on and on with these sorts of verses, he's probably meaning he could go do some more Google searches, I'm pretty sure. So uh, here's his conclusion. Uh, the first conclusion is that we can stick our head in the sand. Now, uh, I want to note, too, before I go through these, that in some sense, I agree with him. Going back to the original 
the original premise, which is that, um, in particular with our young people, if we don't answer these kind, if we don't go over these kinds of um, modernly, moralistically troubling passages, if we don't take our students and go through these things, these are the kind of people that we're going to bring them up to be. People that they, they weren't ever trained by their youth leaders. They were never trained by their pastors. They were never trained by their parents. They were never told about these verses. And then they go off to college in their 20s, because remember that this, uh, this article starts off talking about a girl who was in her early 20s and became an atheist in her 20s. Uh, they go off to college, and then all of a sudden, they're being exposed to these verses not by Christians, but by non-Christians. And because Christians, the ones who should have been teaching them, never did, now they're getting a response from a non-Christian that's telling them to just throw away the Bible, and that's exactly what they do. And this guy is, I mean, you know, how much better to come to this guy's position rather than to be an atheist? doesn't really matter. I mean, you know, you can either be an atheist or you can just believe that the Bible is full of a bunch of, uh, full of, bunch of mistakes and is, um, is typical of human mediocrity. Um, so, I mean, he doesn't, you know, he's not in a better position than the atheists at all, really, because I mean, he doesn't even have scripture on his hand to be, or on his side to begin with. Um, but his first, uh, going back to his conclusions, his first conclusion is we could stick our hand in the sand. And you could just look at these and just kind of glance over them and say, well, it doesn't matter. Um, uh, and of course, we don't want to do that. And he's right, we shouldn't do that. We should be looking at these passages and looking at these passages intently and studying them, which is something that this guy obviously didn't do either. And then the, there's the second second uh, conclusion point that he comes to, call them errors and be done with it. And the funny thing is, is that his third conclusion point says, realize that the purpose of the text is condemnation, and there's no real difference between calling them errors and what he says that we should do, which is the third approach. And I'll read what he has to say here. There is a way to both affirm inspiration and inerrancy while at the same time denying that God had anything to do with it. I am working on writing a more thorough explanation for a future book on this subject, but the short explanation is that we can view the Bible as a divinely inspired text which inerrantly reveals human error. In this way, we get a glimpse into our own hearts by reading Scripture. So let me translate that for you. You can say that you believe in inerrancy if you redefine what inerrancy means. It's inerrant in the sense that humans have errors and the Bible perfectly demonstrates their errors. So you have a book that's filled with human errors. Oh, that's wonderful. What, what a grace. I mean, that is definitely worth singing hymns about, is to you know, sing the, sing the psalms and the great hymns of a book that is completely filled with errors. And how is that different than the second, than the second point? Call them errors in the Bible and be done with it. That's what he's doing. If, if it inerrantly reveals human error, then it's a book of errors. And the scripture has errors. Trying to redefine that and say that it inerrantly reveals human error and to say that these passages are quintessential um, uh, or, or typical, uh, typical of human error, then the Bible's filled with errors. 
And who is going to judge where the errors are and where the errors aren't? Modern man, because that's what he is. And who is modern man? Well, modern man changes from epic to epic, from age to age, from season to season. There is no such thing as a as an able and capable interpreter of scripture if you forever believe that modern man is the is the best interpreter of scripture he cannot be it's it's inherently um, contradictory so um, you, you know what is you know what is what is my conclusion uh, study scripture you know actually get into the text read the text in its context wrestle with it recognize that some of these passages, these passages that we just went through, some of them are difficult. Some of them are hard to swallow. Some of them, we look at it and we go, that doesn't seem to make sense or that's not fair. And study it and wrestle with it and come to the conclusion that, you know, for most of the stuff, we're talking about law that was in Israel. And so the laws that were in place were in order to keep, keep order and keep peace in an ancient society which that should answer the majority of them right there. But for some people, that answer is not going to be good enough, in which case you've got to wrestle with it, and you've got to just eventually lay yourself down, you know, bear your own cross, um, march towards your death to your own self, and recognize that um, uh, Scripture is authoritative, and whether you can swallow it or not, has no bearing on it because as Isaiah says, um, all flesh is grass and it's, it's good works are like the flowers of the field. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And that goes for all of God's word, not just the parts that we agree with. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this podcast and uh, hopefully we can See you again pretty soon. Remember, be sure to uh, check us out on Twitter at PressingOnPCast. And you can find our other podcasts at www.soundcloud.com forward slash PressingOnPodcast. Uh, and uh, there you'll find our older podcasts. You'll find a couple, uh, a couple Sunday school classes that we've taught. And there's also uh, a section of audiobooks that hopefully I'll get back to working on. I need to start putting some more time into that again, but there's a section of audiobooks there that you can listen to um, of uh, open, I want to say open source because I'm a computer guy, but uh, older Christian works that are in audiobook format. So that way, uh, those those of us that don't have time to sit down and read these, these um, more ancient texts, these older texts that you can sit maybe in your car and listen to. So you can find all those in our SoundCloud page, and uh, we'll see you next time. God bless.